Okay. Don has asked um, that we include John Doyle in our prayers, um, who just had an aneurysm, and from what Don said, um, older man widowed, was prepared to marry a woman he'd met and fallen in love with, so but towards the end of his life, an older man? Yes. Coming to the end of his life and facing all of these renewing prospects, and then suddenly he has an aneurysm and he's not doing well right now. So, anybody else? Yeah, Did my uh, natural Brian. Uh, he's had two surgeries on his shattered leg, and he's going to have a third surgery this coming week. God. He had a big problem in his second surgery. They they couldn't finish it because he was going into some kind of stress. So. Shock. Yeah. God. Let's start. God, these things just... What a great burden. What a gift. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. We would not be here without your free gift. You ask us to make our lives a free gift. Strengthen us to do that. Um, thank you especially for the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, your words to us, and your life itself. And we carry you within us. Help us to nurture that life. It takes us into your kingdom, makes us a part of what you're doing. Help us to make your kingdom visible in everything that we do. And ask a special grace for all of us working with this literature that, that it helps us to find you in nature all around us in a world where, for the most part, you're not seen. Strengthen us in that so that we can grow closer to you and to each other. We ask this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, so next week, next week um, will be our last week in the Odyssey. I know that's short, and I apologize. I, I have real regrets about making this as short as I am. It, it would be really good to take another couple of weeks for the Odyssey, but um, I don't like pressing on the work, but I want to get on because the expectation for a number of people was that we'd, we would have started Shakespeare right now, and some people are waiting to come back to the class, so I have to get on. Um, so finish the Odyssey next week, and the following week we start Shakespeare, the commercial regime, Merchant of Venice and Othello. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. You're just going to spend one session on each of the That's plays. a good question. I think, I, originally, it's really interesting. I thought about spending just one class meeting, thinking everybody could do the a play in a week because it's not that much reading. But realistically, thinking about it, it made more sense for me to give two classes on each play. Mm -hmm. okay. The likelihood is that they'll carry over a little bit. When we start in two weeks, I'm going to... I'm going to give a one of those large overviews. You've been here long enough to know that when we started the Epic World, I, I, I start with these. Um, what was the phrase that Scott? He wanted a glass of water and got a fire hydrant instead. <laughs> Somebody else used the word waterboarding. I don't know who came up with that. Anyway, it's going to be, you may want to stay away on the first week. Um, it's going to be, I'm going to give I'm going to give an overview 
that brings us from Dante's world, the medieval world, into the modern world. So I'm going to set that background. It's going to be really important to see the shift that takes place there and what Shakespeare's doing with it because I, I believe that, I believe pretty strongly that Shake, Dante and Shakespeare are the greatest poets who've ever lived. Homer's not far behind, but. So I want to put those two worlds together and open up some themes that are going to be, we're going to do four Shakespeare works. Merchant, Othello, Hamlet, Winter's Tale. Part of me would like to do Lear, because I just think it would be so great for you guys to do Lear, but... And every once in a while I think I should gather the women in the parish and do a course on the feminine heroines in Shakespeare, because there's... The, 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 the main figures in most of his comedies are women. That's a radical change. You know the epics are masculine character, right? The heroes are men. The women, for the most part, are, are temptresses. Well, all they do is get men in trouble. Um, I know. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. You had the courage to say that. Um, in Shakespeare's, there's only one comedy whose central figure is a male, and that's and that's Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> it's, it's taking on these women. Anyway, I, 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 I just there's so much in Shakespeare that would be worth doing, and doing the, the comedies and, and where he focuses on the women would be a special experience, but I'm going to think seriously about doing Lear. But at this point, we're doing four, and there's so much that he's doing <coughs> that I want you to be aware of before we go into it, because it will, it will help you in your reading of those four plays. So the first meeting will be one of those large overviews I'm going to go back to Dante and pick up the Iliad and the Odyssey of the Aeneid very briefly and then describe some of the things that, that Shakespeare's doing because he carried that whole classical past into the modern world. It's what made it possible for him to do the work he did. So the first meeting will be an overview and, and somewhere towards the end of that meeting I'm going to go into Merchant of Venice and, and I'll go to the beginning of it and ask you some questions, just to, just to test you to see how well you're reading it. Um, so that's what we're doing. Okay, the poem for today. <coughs> Hopkins, Kingfisher's Catch Fire. Did I read The Wind Hover last week? I know, you did for this class. Did, I didn't read it last week, did I? I know you read it. Yeah. I'm going to do the wind hover just because it's a wonderful poem. But the, the poem that I chose for this morning is on the back page called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. Um, remember, the wind hover is it's about that moment when Hopkins, early in the morning, is probably out walking and he, he catches sight of this wind hover at the moment when it catches the wind and for a moment seems to master the wind. And in that moment he finds, um, he experiences something in nature participating in the crucifixion. So he's showing, and I'm leading up, the, the poem on the reverse side will do something similar. He's showing that Christ is present in ways that very often we don't see. Remember, it's got an octave and a sestet. The first eight lines in octave, they all rhyme. It's followed by a sestet. It's called an Italian sonnet. 
The first eight lines typically render an experience immediately, just the way it happened, as if you were back experiencing the bird. The sestet is a reflection on it. So he's abstracting, he's stepping back from the experience and thinking about it, reflecting. If you listen to the lines when I read them, you'll get some sense of the bird himself. It's almost as if we enter into the life of the bird, we move with him. You all know what automatopoeia means. It, it means the sound of the lines imitate the action that's going on. So if you listen to the words and you hear his description, he calls him the morning's minion, the darling of the morning. He's the dar he belongs to the, to the sunrise. He's the kingdom of Daylot's Dauphin. The Dauphin is the, is, the, is the heir of the French throne, right? He's the heir of the kingdom. So all that language is no accident. He sees in this bird an image of Christ belonging to the sunlight, the morning, the sunrise. He's the heir who will inherit the kingdom. <clears throat> and then he describes this bird and then he reflects on it. In the reflection, what he says is, this, this may seem extraordinary, right? This what he's just seen. But he says, no wonder of it. There's no wonder. It's all around us. And he gives the example of a farmer <clears throat> tilling the ground. And if you, if you watch the, the effect of what a farmer does, you'll see that a, an earth that, that starts out clay and um, un, it's the kind of earth that won't produce plants. It goes from this clay, rocky condition to a, a very fine silt. And it's so fine that it shines. Okay? So he says, there's no wonder in this. The, 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 the sheer labor of the farmer working his earth produces this plow down cillion, this shining earth. It's almost like the earth is glowing. And then he ends with a description of the fire. And you know the difference when a fire is first started, it's raging. And, but there reaches this point just before the fire goes out where the coals begin to break down and then it produces this beautiful vermilion light, this glow. So in the work of the farmer, in the fire, he's seen reenactments of the cross, the beauty that's everywhere in nature. How many of us see it? Hardly at all. So once again, it's the poets showing us things and helping us to feel things ordinarily we don't see, ordinarily we don't feel. Okay? In the second poem, as King Fetchers Catch Fire, what he's, what he's going to do is show, and, it's, and it speaks actually to this ancient literature that we're going, this classical literature that we're going back to. He's saying that everything in nature is not an object even though we objectify everything in nature, we turn each other. We see each other as objects. Another. Yeah, that's the way we see each other. I mean, this is going to be a big part of what we're doing, the honest thing. We see each other as objects. We tend to objectif objectify things all the time. Hopkins is saying that everything has a self. It's a subject. And in saying that, he's saying exactly what St. Thomas said. St. Thomas said, everything in nature is a subject in its own right. A leaf, a flower, a bird, an animal, a human. Each thing is not an object until we make it an object in our minds. It is a thing in itself with its own identity. 
So he looks at the kingfisher, the dragonfly, the, the stones rumbling, tumbling down a well, naming itself, and then he says, he describes the, the, the tongue on a bell. You know what the tongue is? It's the clangor that hits the, 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 the lip of the bell. And it's, he's punny. I mean, it's a deliberate pun because what he's saying is the bell speaks its name. So there, there's nothing in nature that doesn't speak its own name. You, I remember years ago, um, somebody, I know, I know Doc, Suzanne loves flowers and she nurtured them. She, she always has living flowers in her home, always, always. And she takes time to decorate them. I mean, there's a real care in what she does. I don't think I've ever heard her talking to the flowers. <laughs> but I don't have any question that there's some communion. I mean, she, she gives herself. To, I, I've heard stories about women who actually talk with plants. And I think, I think there's something to it. There's something nurturing there going on. Lots of people would think that's stupid, you know, ridiculous. God, this, St. Francis of Assisi, this is our church. St. Francis's response to this, this is before the world changed. Brother, son, sister, moon. There was nothing in nature that wasn't a person to that saint. That's what made, led him to his conversion. Brother, son, sister, moon. He was fond of everything because he recognized God was in everything. Everything was its own person. It had its own, it was its own subject. So as ridiculous as that may sound, it's, it's ironic. We're at a church named after a man who stood in the world that way. How many people in the modern world stand that way? Have even a clue about it? Anyway, so Kingfisher's Catch Fire is a poem celebrating the fact that each thing in nature speaks itself. It, it, is, its, it is a subject in its own right, even if we don't see that. So, Hopkins. <coughs> the Wind Hover to Christ our Lord. Caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. I mean, you should hear in that onomatopoeia, dappled dawn, drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady. I mean, it's hard not to feel the sweep of the bird in lines like that. Brute beauty and valor and act, O'Hare, pride plume, here, buckle. Notice how that whole line gathers to the next line and then stops. Once again, it's, it's the, the, all of those qualities in the bird gathering together coming together, just the way we buckle things pulling together. And I think I've mentioned this before, the, the word buckle has two meanings. It means pulling together all these powers, but it also means collapsing. And that's the dual nature of Christ in that moment when he pulled all of his powers together and offered them, he gathered them together and in that moment was crucified. That's at the center of the crucifixion, that's what happens. Through beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times to a lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier, chevalier. No wonder of it, 
Sheer plod makes plow down cillian shine, and blue bleak embers, ah my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. As kingfishers catch fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung fine's tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Cells. Notice that. I mean, the emphasis dwells, cells. He, the rhyming between things because they're all cells. Each one dwells, cells, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying. What I do is me, for that I came. I say more. The just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs, and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. We find him everywhere if we would look into people's eyes. Um, I want to come back to this, and I want to, I want to use the uh, reading for this morning, because it, <laughs> this is so often the case, it speaks so directly to what we're doing. Just a quick review. We've talked about the epic... Um, We've talked about the epic as being um, a work about a founding. That it belongs with the Iliad and the Odyssey, belong with Genesis and Exodus. Um, it, it has to do with the struggle of a people um, learning to face some disorder, whatever that disorder is. By the way, it was true, it wasn't true, it was true in the Bible. You know, all the Jews had to do to go through the desert and go into exile and come out, that they were constantly dealing with these disorders and being refounded, re being returned to the covenant again. The epic is always about a founding, that um, some hero is chosen out to bear um, a divinely appointed task, some burden that the other men don't face. And by means of what he does, he he makes it possible for this new spirit to enter a people and reconstitute it, be the basis for a family. That's what happened in the Iliad, that's what's happening in the Odyssey. The difference is we've said that in the Iliad, the Iliad is primarily about um, Achilles and this sense of the kleos, the kleos, this sense of honor, this, this intrinsic dignity that man has and how often it's um, tainted, spoiled, People identify selves with the possessions and wealth that they have. The hero we have here is a, is a different kind of a hero, and I'll come to that in a minute. So we've shifted from the Iliad to the Odyssey. The Odyssey is still an epic. It's about a founding. But the founding, in this case, has to do with homes and marriages. It's not about an individual. It's about a man and a woman and the special place they have in civilization. And we all know that the principle of continuity in a civilization is a marriage. Without marriages, civilization can't go on. And I think everybody knows how, 
how much we're in trouble with marriages today. I mean, it, it, marriages are threatened everywhere. That marriages are so difficult in our in our time. The note, oh, I wanted to introduce another term. We've talked about the epics of founding. Um, I, I want to introduce this term, even though it may, this may confuse a little bit. The word in literature, romance, it's a romance genre, typically in literature means a work full of adventures, improbable adventures. Tolkien's trilogy would, would be called a romance in that sense, yeah? Moby Dick, this white whale that does these strange things. So in literature, a romance typically means an adventure story with improbable, strange sorts of things happening. <clears throat> in that sense, the Odyssey is romantic because it's full of adventures and improbabilities, strange things happening. Um, Odysseus meeting these strange figures at sea, having all these adventures, and then having to come home. By anti-romantic, I mean this. So often in the modern world, we think of romance in terms of a couple getting together, dealing with their struggles, resolving them, and then living happily ever after. <laughs> That's the, and in that sense, this work is anti-romantic because that is not what Homer's showing us. Odysseus and, and Penelope have been separated for 20 years. And they're struggling. Pen Penelope's doing all she can to hold her life together while these suitors are bearing down on her. Odysseus is doing everything he can to get home. He's on Calypso's island for eight years, and, and almost that entire time he's mourning. He doesn't want to be there. The power she has over him is so great. Um, but he finally does get home, and they're reconciled. And, we, and if you've read, I don't know where you are in your reading, there's going to be this wonderful moment. I can't give it away. I can't give it away. Something happens in bed. Let me put it that way. <laughs> My wife just rolled her eyes. Something got our attention. Yes, it did. I want you to just, it'll focus it. It'll help you some. It happens when they're in bed, and what happens, I can't tell you. And those of you who have dirty minds, you're already wrong. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about, too. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell on Don this morning sometime. <laughs> Should not have told me. Um, anyway, anti-romantic is this. Remember the, the, the epithet given to Odysseus, long-suffering Odysseus, long-enduring. There's nothing that he does that doesn't cause him suffering, and almost nothing that he does that doesn't bring suffering to others. Everywhere he goes, the word Odysseus, we'll, we'll see shortly, the word Odysseus means distasteful. So allegorically, what he, what he means as a person, that there's something in his character that's going to make other people uncomfortable. By the way, that's one of the ways in which he's anticipating Christ. Is there anything Christ did that didn't cause people discomfort? The, the, the disciples often, the lawyer who comes to him, the scribes and the Pharisees want to get rid of him. So in, in, in a very important way, he's anticipating that. Odysseus represents something in nature. I'll come to that in a minute. He represents something in nature that, that brings suffering to himself and brings suffering to everybody around him. Wherever he goes, there are problems. So we have to ask why. So, and, and at the end of the book, after he and Penelope are reconciled, 
we know that their life is not settled. We, the prophecy that he receives from Teresius in the underworld, the prophecy says, and you will die this kind, he will go on wandering. By his very, this is so much like Christ. There is still work to be done. The suffering will not end. So it's not as if everything will end happily and all the suffering will be over. I mean, most of us have reached an age, I think, where our lives are fairly settled. I don't know, but, but, I, but I'd, be, I'd be surprised if anybody could say, any of us could say, our lives are free of suffering. I mean, when we do the prayers, we get these stories, and in our own families we know about suffering, the struggles, the disorders. We all, we're moving to the end of our lives and still carry them. So it's not like it's going to be over. So what I mean by anti-romantic is that. Remember the two shields on Achilles, or the two cities on Achilles' shield, the city of war, the city of peace? He said those are eternal conditions. So long as we're in nature, we're going to be dealing with good and evil. Justice is always going to be, present us with problems. We're going to have wars. The Odyssey is like that. No matter what happens, Odysseus will go on suffering, struggling, to bring good to whatever he's doing. So he's a very different kind of hero. Homer never shows things completely settled, finally settled. There will always be difficulties. So in that sense, it's, it's an answer to a black-white mindset. Thinks that if I do this, I'll be happy. You know, if I get this, I'll be happy. Not gonna happen. Suffering, suffering's gonna be with us to the end of our days. Or if we're, if we're taking the Odyssey as a the logos, <clears throat> so important. Remember I've been saying that there is this rationality, this sense of purpose and order to everything in nature. Can you take out the, the piece on St. Thomas? I've got to pull together a couple of things here. That, so I'm going to have to do this from a, different, a number of different perspectives, but they all go to the same, they all go to the same center. You all have the same piece? I don't know. Here, Don, I've got it. Here. Huh? I know. Everybody? Do I have it? What is it? I think you do right there. Isn't that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe if I put my glasses on. Oh, yeah. Does anybody else need one? Hold on, this is going to be a roller coaster. I've got to pull several things together, okay? Remember the Hopkins poem, okay? Each thing has a self. We see, we see things as it, or its, or they. We don't see things as an I, a subject in itself. One of the things that the Odyssey is about Shafali, do you have, do you want it? Do you have? I don't have one. I can't give you mine because I, um, hold on because I'll get you one, okay? Oh, okay? If you could look on with somebody. Um, each thing is a self. One of the questions that we face according to our belief, particularly in marriage, is whether we can become one flesh. Yeah? Or whether we, whether we actually join, become one, or whether we stay on parallel tracks, living together without completely joining. 
I think that's a fair way of contrasting the situations we face in marriage. How do we enter into the, the I, the subject of another person? How do we do that? What does it mean to do that? Hopkins was saying everything in nature has a self. Okay. Um, St. Thomas says this. In this, this, this particular question is taken from his treatise on love, or is dealing with love. I, I think it's amazing. What St. Thomas says is this. All things in nature are, are moved by love because they were made by a God of love. So he says, the first motion of everything is love, and the nature of love is to move towards the good. That's true of everything in nature. By the way, that's why St. Francis could say, brother, son, sister, moon. Take that away, and it's impossible to say that. It's a sun, with whatever physical properties it has for a scientist, or a moon, yeah? He said, brother, son, sister, moon. St. Thomas said, all, the first motion of all things in nature is love, because they, they were created by a God of love, okay? And the nature of love is always to move towards the good of something. So when a sunflower moves in relation to a sun, as the sun moves across the sky, yeah, it's moving towards its own good because without it, it couldn't live, right? Its own goodness depends on that light, so it moves with it. Think about that. How much do we move with each other as we should towards some good? I mean, that's the motion of love. We know that we undercut that all the time all the time. The great threat in this book is called Ravenous Belly. Over and over and over and over again, um, Homer keeps talking about the appetites of man. The, the classical soul was like this. Reason, thumos, this is going to change. I'm going to go through this when we do Shakespeare again because it's really important. <coughs> that the danger for the human soul is that the appetites for physical things is so great that it overcomes reason. Themos is anger. It's the spirited part in this um, that moves towards noble things. Goodness, virtue, beauty, truth. When somebody, here's Achilles, when somebody threatens an injustice or to degrade, to distort the truth or the beauty of something, we get angry. Because those are noble things. We move towards those. The appetites are those things that move towards the physical things. The great threat, I mean, you can't, you almost can't read 10 pages in the Odyssey without Homer talking about the ravenous belly. The, I, can't, I can't remember the names. Anybody, I'm going to have, it's very, it's named variously, but it's called the ravenous belly. It's just overwhelming. The great struggle for all of us is learning to overcome our appetites ordering our loves, making our loves good. That's the great task for us as human beings, for, as Catholics, certainly. Protestants believe we're corrupted by the fall. By the fall. Catholics don't. We believe we were wounded. And the great struggle for us is to learn to order our loves, to make them good, to make them just, to follow Christ. St. Thomas says, all things in nature are moved by love. We call it gravity or a force. We would objectify it in some mathematical, physical terms. 
Thomas would say, they're all moved by appetites. Now here's what he says about um, love. He's, he's asking the question whether love is a concupiscible power. And he, and he says it is. But here's what I want to look at. Look at the I answer that. I answer that love is something pertaining to the appetite, since good is the object of both. What's the object of love? The good. Yeah, we've talked about this when we did Dante. We shouldn't confuse pity with love, because pity identifies with the suffering of another. Love is emotion towards the good of another for that person's sake. That's why love is, should be selfless. We're acting for the good of another. That's what Christ was doing. So even when we didn't deserve his love, he offered it because he was hoping for the good of us. Yeah? So he gave his life for that. He asked us to do the same. So the object of love is the good of another. That person's good, whatever that is. Love is something pertaining to the appetite, since good is the object of both, the appetites and love. Wherefore, love differs according to the difference of appetites. Now, there's, he's going to name three different classes of things. Natural things, animals, and humans. Okay? Natural things, animals, and humans. Because all of them have appetites. Yes? For there is an appetite which arises from an apprehension existing, not in the subject of the appetite, but in some other. And this is called the natural appetite. Because natural things seek what is suitable to them according to their nature by reason of an apprehension which is not in them, but in the author of their nature. Now just hold on to that. I want to come back to that. That's the first. That's natural things. Two. There's another appetite arising from an apprehension in the subject of the appetite, but from necessity and not from free will, such as in irrational animals. Those are irrational animals, right? They have appetites, but they do it out of instinct, necessity. They don't have a free will. They don't have an intellectual will. They can't reason about things. They move towards things by their appetites, out of necessity, out of an instinct. We, all, we, we notice this when we train animals, when we train a dog, we watch a dog take on something of human reason. Don't we all see that when we train a dog? It's almost like they become rational, they take on human quality. Because reason is, helps shape them in doing what they do. But left to themselves, they act on instinct. Necessity. They can't, a dog can't be other than a dog in what he does, or a bird. Or... Three. Again, there's another appetite following freely from an apprehension in the subject of the appetite. That is, in the subject himself. And this is the rational or intellectual appetite. I'm going to come back to this when we do Shakespeare. My point here is this. Human beings have an appetite and reason. And St. Thomas says you cannot separate them. The very presence of reason implies a will to do something about it. Otherwise, why reason on alternatives? The fact that we have a free will implies a reason. They're inseparable for Thomas. In animals, animals have an appetite like all things in creation, they move towards a wolf will seek out rabbits. He's not being evil. He's doing what he should do to eat. Um, and rabbits are not being evil when they're eating a farmer's carrots. <laughs> they're doing what they, sh they want to eat. Um, even though a farmer may want to take out a shotgun and treat him as if he's being evil. 
But here's the one I want you to look at, the first one. There's an appetite which arises from an apprehension existing not in the subject of the appetite, but in some other. And this is called a natural appetite. Because natural things seek what is suitable to them, think about a sunflower, according to their nature by reason of an apprehension which is not in them, but in the author of their nature. There is nothing that's been created that doesn't show the signs of the apprehensive power of their creator. Every plant has an order and a purpose to it. Where did it get it? And it's directed by the apprehensive power of its creator because the creator made it that way. So everything in creation shows signs of the apprehensive power and the love of its creator because all things in nature have appetites and they either have an apprehensive power in themselves the way we do or they're, um, they're present in the creator. So, <clears throat> now one last thing to tie all this up because it's a lot. This is from the psalm reading today. O Lord, you have probed me and you know me. You know me when I sit and when I stand. You understand my thoughts from afar. My journeys and my rest you scrutinize. With all my ways you are familiar. Where can I go from your spirit? From your presence where can I flee? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. It says, you know when I sit, you know when I stand. Let me, let me try to sum this up very, very briefly. If God, what the psalmist is claiming is that God knows us to our depths. If he's a spiritual being and he created us, how can he not know us? Do, do our loved ones, do we, do we in our marriages know each other the way God knows us? I would say no. Because there's, I mean, I go to confession and confess my sins and I know Suzanne knows a lot of them. She's had to suffer them all of her life. Does she know them in the depths the way that I do? I don't think so. But God does. And here's the point I want to make. If we're not known by God, who knows us? There's nobody who knows us completely as a subject, and, and I, I would say we don't even know ourselves as well as he knows us. So this whole question of entering into the self of another, how well do we do it to the eye of another? Because in any way in which we objectify each other, we remove ourselves, we, we, we prevent ourselves from doing it. And to do that is an extraordinary risk and an adventure. I hope that's clear. To enter into the life of another involves a lot of risk, pains, burdens. It's an adventure. What's Odysseus doing? In the middle of his journey, he's going into these archetypes which are images of the depths of the soul, those things that are most obscure in us that we can't see. Because there's no way he's going to be able to go home and have a marriage with his wife, certainly that's not any different from Nestor's or Menelaus's if he doesn't do that. Okay, so this whole, this whole notion of the Logos is really very rich in the Greek world. I, I was talking with Father John Roberts once and saying to him that I thought in some ways the Greek imagination was far more ready to receive Christ than the Jewish. Because if you know the Jewish people, they, they, they were very wary about images. They didn't want an image in the Ark of the Covenant. We can't go anywhere in the Greek world and not see gods everywhere. Because there are, there are selves, in, every tree has a god in it. Every river had a, has a person. There's a person in everything in nature. Some, 
Did you ask it, Don? What? Yeah, I already covered this. Didn't you ask why is it they wine and dine strangers when they come, when, when Menelaus comes to Nestor's house or Menelaus? Long before they ever ask who they are. Odysseus, when he goes to the Phaeacians, he's wine, dine, he's sent to bed the first night, he gets up the next night, they celebrate him again. It isn't until he's ready to leave that they ask who he is. And then, then he tells the story. Why? Because the Greek world knew that every human being might be a god because the divine was present everywhere. So the Greek imagination was far more open to divinity in some ways than the Jewish, even though the Christ came to us through the Jews. So in, in this Greek world that we're in, divine personhood is everywhere. And one of the things that Odysseus is doing as a hero is learning to come to terms with these on his adventures, to enter into the depth. That's what all those archetypes are. That he's, Otherwise, he's just going to see his wife as according to who she is. Like, how, how does Penelope, who is Penelope to the suitors? To the, sorry, what No. Yes, no. I thought it was great. No, I think, what would you call them, rowdy, whatever they were. Like. Anyway, Don came up with, very poetic term. I loved what he did. But who is, who is Penelope to the to the suitors. She's a thing. Yeah, exactly. She's no different than the women to the men in the Iliad. And, and even more, because they know if they get her, they get Odysseus's state and a power. So she's completely objectified. So one of the things we're being shown in the Odyssey is this is a woman to this group of men, this Horny horde, or whatever. <laughs> horny horde. That's 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 a that, that, that's onomatopoeic, by the way. I think it's a, a perfect description of these men. They they just want her for her sex, yes, and her power. And we and we know we know what the we know what the suitors and the maidservants are doing every night. The maidservants are betraying Penelope because they're going out and having sex every night. So, I mean, you can't you can't put a veil over it. That's what's going on in the book. What is it, how is Odysseus going to deal with this? What's he going to do? What has he got to learn in order to come home to write things? That's very much what this book is about. But underneath it, it's about learning to see a person inwardly as having a self. And, and the new kind of hero uh, well, come, has, has got to bring different kinds of powers. So the logos, the homecoming. Remember that the principal theme of the of the Odyssey is nostos, homecoming, from which we get nostalgia, going back. Um, he has to get home, that's why he's grieving. The new kind of hero, we're gonna see that he's new in the sense that if he represents anything as a hero, he represents the fulfillment of, get this down, the fulfillment of all the potentials in man to be good. And what we find in him are the four natural virtues. That Aristotle got this from Homer. Prudence, endurance or courage, justice, temperance. Those are the natural virtues. Temperance, he's learning to put away the ravenous belly to not let his appetites overcome him. Shafali, you had a question. Were you asking? I thought you were asking. No? Well, I do, but 
<laughs> you okay? The four natural virtues. So prudence to know what to do under what circumstances, how. Temperance to restrain his appetites. Justice to, to bring justice where he goes. And endurance and courage. To, to be able to put his life at risk in order to better it. That's what courage is. You have to sometimes put your life in danger in order to save it. So he represents the mean, and I, I just have to underline this because we're, we're going to go to this in Shakespeare. He's the mean. In every city, he's learning to confront some excess and, and learning from the effects of it. Isn't that true for us? In our, I mean, we, we, in our experiences with each other, our families, or so whatever, we learn to see, if we watch television today, there's no way we can miss it. Excesses are all around us. But in, and this is so important. The Protestant mind believes we're corrupted. The, the, the effects of the fall were complete. We don't. Wait, so the only, the only answer to that corruption is Christ. Christ would be my savior. The natural order is gone. What we're learning from Homer is that we can become virtuous, but virtue means the mean. It's, so the goodness in our nature is not doing extreme things. Drinking too much, sex too much, possessing too much. I mean, whatever it is, the danger for us is that it prevents us from becoming virtuous. Odysseus brings a virtue to wherever he goes, and wherever he goes, he brings problems. Just the way Christ did. So let me let me turn to the some of the schemes now. Let me let me get to the book. Um, I want to do some quick readings from the book, but. Um, They may have left already, I'm not sure. <coughs> Here's the plot. Here's the plot. Here's the plot. This is the structure of the... or the plot. Remember the Iliad opened in the ninth and a half year. And we saw the importance of that always in medius race, in the midst of things. It's exactly the same sort of thing we confront in our families when we learn Aunt Sally eloped with, left her husband, or our son Johnny is on drugs, or drinking too much, or whatever it is, whatever, whatever we confront. But in the midst of things, in the means, in the midst of a problem, there's some, there's some disorder there, whatever it is. But nine and a half is significant because that, that signifies something's about to be completed. But it can't be completed until the disorders are confronted, faced. So Homer doesn't start when Paris and Menelaus take off. It starts with a quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles. And then we see what happens. All the dying and the conflicts. 
But we also saw the order that came out of that. All the battles, remember, in increasing order. And we finally saw Achilles and Hector meet. But that's after Achilles admits his fault, the only man to do it, and accepts his death. And once he does that, nobody can touch him. He gets this new armor. Remember, he was using his father's armor. He, it, it's clear that Homer's showing us that part of his power was from his father, that he's got to reach a point where he has to be himself. And he has that new armor, and nobody can look at it except him. <clears throat> because we see he stepped outside that code. He's given up his life. What's there to be afraid of? Nobody can stop him. And then it, it ends. The Odyssey picks up where that leaves off. It opens in the ninth and a half year, in Medius race. Where is Odysseus? He's on Calypso's island. And we learn that he's been there for eight years. Hermes comes to set him free. I'm going to look at this. Calypso does not want to, one of the first things we remember I said that, that the Odyssey is, is a pretty powerful critique of women just as the Iliad is a critique of men. And one of the things that we see about women in the Odyssey is how possessive they are. Calypso does not want to let Odysseus go. The gods have to come to release him. She does not, she does not want to let him go. When he's freed and goes, he, he gets on the raft beside him, right, swamps it. He comes to the island of the Phaeacians, Scaria. And it's here, in this island, that he tells his stories. And he goes back to tell the stories. Once he's done, the Phaeacans take him home, and then we've got the homecoming. It's the last third of the... So that's the story. Everybody's clear in the structure, right? Two interesting things to note. If you look at, well, actually several. He's here at Scaria. And it's here that he tells his stories. He has to come to a place where stories can be heard. Could he tell the stories of the Cyclops Island? I'm going to hope that's clear. There has to be a place for art, and I'll talk about this in a minute. Just keep that in mind. The other is, when he tells the story, remember, Calypso is the only figure outside of those adventures. And I think that's also because Homer could have set this up so that he comes here and then tells the story and Eclipse was included in it. He didn't. I think that's another way Homer has of showing us how unusual her power is, how extraordinary. We already know how extraordinary it is because Circe has Odysseus for one year, Calypso for eight. So whatever she represents in, in woman, it's powerful. It's quiet, it's isolated, it's alone, and it's powerful. Um, okay, that's, that's the plot, yeah? Now just take a look quickly. I don't want to go through these, just but you all, you all have this sheet here with the prophecies. It would be just a, a good thing to look at, um, to keep in mind, because it'll help you. So many of the prophecies early in the book are prophecies that Odysseus, they're for Telemachus. The tele, the, Odysseus, Athena says to Telemachus, Halitherses says to Telemachus, Odysseus, your father will come home. 
but he doesn't believe them. Um, he tends to be very negative, but there are prophecies that run everywhere through the book. Okay, last week, here's where we were. In the Telemachi, in the Telemachi, there were three homes. There was Ithaca, there was Pylos, and there was Sparta. Boy, that's a good question. Because yeah. they're going to come, and why do they make him suffer for Because he's not learning anything, is he? No, but I think I, that's a good question. Um, did everybody hear the question? No. Can you ask it again? Oh, why did the gods uh, wait so long to release Odysseus from uh, Calypso? Do you probably remember at the end of the Iliad when, um, it reminds me of that moment, Achilles had dragged Hector's body for 13 days, yeah. and lots of people say, why do the gods wait? And I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not being, I hope I'm being truthful here. I, I think I am. Um, the readings from, uh, um, we've had, not Joe, but, um, there's a time for everything. What, for Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, the appropriate time for things, you know. Um, my first response, I think, because Homer has to show the power that Calypso represents, that it's so great. If, if the gods were to come at any other point, we wouldn't have a sense of just how great that power is. So two things, I mean, in answer to your question. One is, Odysseus cannot get free of her. And by the way, he cannot get free of... Think about our culture and the struggles we have in our own marriages. I mean, think about the struggles we have with our own passions. I mean, put it sort of blankly. Um, Odysseus cannot get free of Calypso without the God's help. She won't let go of him without the God's help. Hermes comes and says, let him go. She doesn't want to do it. She says, you gods are... Awful people, you know. Hermes goes to Calypso or Circe's island and gives Odysseus the Molly. Without that Molly, she'd have control over him. We know that. Um, so we know Circe wants control over the men. She wants she wants to turn them all into. In fact, she does that with Odysseus's men. The only reason he's not turned in is because he gets that help from the god. So in dealing with both of those feminine figures, Circe. Hermes or Calypso, he, they are so powerful that he cannot deal with them without the help of the gods. So Homer's showing us that just on human terms, <laughs> I don't know how to put it, men are outnumbered. How else can I put it? I mean, things don't look very good with, I mean, people talk about, you know, you, when you, I, I laugh when I watch women talk about being empowered as if they needed any more power than they already have. God. What Homer's showing us is that women have this extraordinary power innately by their beauty, who they are as figures. But he's showing us in both instances that if left to himself by his natural powers, there's no way man can deal with these 
Circe, Circe represents that in woman which will reduce man to his animal nature, the sexual nature, the appetites are so strong. Calypso represents that which is immortal. She offers him immortality. To not be human. To not accept his humanity. He grieves for eight years because his natural end is to be with his wife. But there's this image, this divine image, and it's absolutely isolated. She's off by herself. <coughs> he can't get free of either of those without the help of the gods. So Homer's showing us that one of the things that Odysseus has got to learn to deal with in relation to his wife before he can go home and... Is the power of women. Sorry? So he's got to learn how to deal with the power of women. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And maybe it's better to put the power that they have over him or that he gives them by something wrong in himself. <coughs> Let me just hold off on that until next week because I want to I want to look at that a different way. So either way you look at it, I think it's important to look at it both ways actually. Um, he's got to learn to do something with himself in order to get free of those things in a woman. In, and I'm assuming everybody will relate that to Penelope, his wife. Remember the three homes. In Pylos, all Nestor could do is talk about his past exploits. We've gone through this, right? And in Sparta, when they talk about the past exploits or sufferings, Helen wants to bring out drugs. And remember, one of the things that Telemachus has to deal with is he's got to find his father. What's One of the things that's wrong with um, Ithaca is the absence of a male authority. His son has grown up without a father. All these men lack a leader. I think about the cities in America today, I mean, the problem we're having with cities. Remember, there's no way, this is so important, we've lost this notion. If you talk with a psychologist today, you'll go into the person's psyche. Homer makes clear, when we read Shakespeare, Shakespeare's gonna make it clear. There's no way to understand the disorders of any human being without seeing them in the context of their upbringing, their city. That's that Plato's cave. Remember, because we're all, we all assimilate these things as we grow up. Question is, do we, do we, is there any way to get outside of them so we can learn to see them to get better on them? We cannot understand Odysseus as a hero apart from the city. And what we're learning here are certain disorders. You can call this the pathos, the pathos, the kind of poetry, the pathos of an illusory heroic code. Nestor continues to live in the wounds of his past. He won't get out of them. Sparta is the pathos um, of the wounds of the past and a failed marriage. The whole Trojan War was fought over Helen leaving, right? So Pylos is trapped in the wounds of the past. Sparta's trapped in the wounds of the past. Remember, Telemachus has got to find a father, but he has hanging over this. This is one of the opening passages in the book. He has hanging over him that Orestes had to avenge his father's death by killing Clytemnestra and Aegisthus, her lover. Remember the opening scene where the gods have that council and the gods say, oh, mortals blame us for all their problems as if they don't have a will of their own. He says, all humans have free will. That when Agamemnon came home, we warned Clytemnestra and Agisthos not to kill him, but they did anyway. 
Orestes comes home. He has to avenge his father's death by killing his mother. By the way, that's the, the great subject of, of Aeschylus' trilogy called the Oresteia. It's one of the most extraordinary trilogies in drama that we have. It's about Orestes doing this. Telemachus knows about Orestes. Here's this young man who had to take on this horrible burden. The question, this, by the way, this is looking forward to Hamlet. It's exact same story. Hamlet keeps comparing himself to other sons who face similar problems. Telemachus berates him because he doesn't know whether he'll have the courage to take order at his house. And we know right now that he doesn't. He's gotten prophecies that his father will come home. He doesn't believe them. I read that passage when he's with Nestor and said, only if the gods could do this. And Athena's right there. Didn't we talk about that? He's young. There's just a lot he doesn't understand. He doesn't see. Um, <laughs> I'm getting sick. What? <laughs> um, so to Telemachus, Telemachus has hanging over him um, this image of a young son who had these amazing burdens. Will he be able to live up to them? So we, we leave these cities and come to Odysseus, and here's what we see. After he leaves Calypso's island, he sits down to tell the stories of his adventures. On page 138. I'm good, Doc. I'm good, good. I'm going to send her out. Um, be nice. Page 138. keep you and Kathy apart. 138. He, remember he, um, he was helped to leave Calypso's island. He built this raft and Poseidon swamped it. We know that Poseidon is angry at him. Why? Because he poked out Polyphemus' eye. And he comes up ashore on Scaria, where he meets this Phaeacian people. One more, take out, take out. This, this, this will help set the step. Take a look at the mean before we look at Odysseus's adventures. It has these two circles on one side and three circles on the other. Okay, take a look at Scaria and the Cyclops Island. Okay, everybody have it? You feel like you're back in class looking at all these papers. <laughs> Duck, I think they need. Always. <laughs> 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 is there, is 
everybody okay? Take a look. If you remember when, we, when Homer first describes the Phaeacians and the Cyclops, he says that they used to live together next to each other. But the Phaeacians became distressed because the Cyclops were so brutal that the two of them lived together close to the gods, both of them. And we know that the gods are close to everybody, even the Cyclops, even as a brutal. <coughs> this is really, I'm just amazed. You know, there are all these passages in the Bible that says God's reign reigns on the good and the bad. He looks out for all of us. You know, he's still going to look out for the bad. He wants the conversion. He wants people to turn. They were together, and then the Phaeacians moved. But notice, notice the differences between them. I'm going to read the, the Scarians, and then I'm going to come to the Cyclops in a minute. When Odysseus first arrives and he meets with Nausicaa, he learns that the, they were near to the gods in origin. Do you all have the circle? Mm-hmm. Nausicaa says no man can come bringing warlike attack. They, li- they live removed from the wars that go on with other peoples. It's as if they're isolated in a, work of, a world of their own. They have no concern with a bow, only ships. They have graceless speech. They're insolent men. They can be rude. They have no patience. What characterizes their city is the glory of the architecture because Hephaestus made it all. So wherever you go, you see these mansions, these beautifully formed buildings. They're skilled in wisdom. Um, They tell stories. They dance. They are in every, I, I don't know a better comparison, they are in everywhere an image of what today we would call suburbia. They are mannered, removed from the city, removed from violence, they're in a world of their own. Um, things are protected there, okay? Um, but there's also a problem, I want to come to it. So in, in, um, in Scaria, if this is the Phaeacian line, we have a world of techne. Of techne is the Greek word for man-making, techne, to make, from which we get technology. And I'm going to come to this because this is so important. They, they are a highly idealized world. They are removed from the world in some way. The Cyclops, we're going to see, are their very opposite. They're brutal creatures. They're going to eat Odysseus's meat. So let's... So remember that what Odysseus is learning is the ways of people and in some ways what not to be. Yeah? What not to be the violence of people that they grow accustomed to. Think about Ferguson or all the cities that we've been reading about and the history behind them and the sort of disorders that that get perpetuated where people become arrested. They get trapped in a way of life. And and one, one of the serious questions people ought to be dealing with is very seriously, how do we get people out of that once they once they become accustomed to a way of life? Okay, let's look at the, at the voyages. Odysseus sits down, he's in Scaria with the Phaeacians, and he tells his stories. Page 138. From Ilion the wind took me and drove me ashore at Ismaros by the Caconians. I sacked their city and killed their people. Very nice. 
So here's the Odyssey. Here's the ninth and a half year. He sits at, he's at Calypso's Island. He tells the stories. He's been at Troy for 10 years killing people. Is there any irony, anything unusual in the fact that the very first thing he does when he leaves Troy is kill people? He's a sacker of cities. What has he been doing for 10 years? Put a man in war in our age, put a man in war for four years and bring him home. What's it going to be like for his family, for his wife, his children? I mean, seriously think about that because we all know what's the, I mean, the story of that repeated again. And how, how well do the veterans, God, I don't want to get started, how well do people take care of people who have been in that situation for that long? Particularly in a modern world where you don't have the support of anybody around you, except maybe your buddies who are in war with you. His first adventure is as a sacker of cities. There I was for the light foot in escaping and urged it, but they were greatly foolish and would not listen. Remember, one of the things that distinguishes his companions, they're fools, they do not listen. His companions are not going to get home. We know that already. They don't make it. Here we're seeing the very first adventure, they're already not listening. Second adventure, page 139. Nine days then I was swept along by the force of the hostile winds and the fishy sea, but on the tenth day we landed in the country of the lotus eaters who live on flowering food. These are the lotus eaters. They offer Odysseus' companions lotus, and what's their response about getting home? They don't want to get home. Is there anything unusual about this? Here, he's a sacker of cities. Right? The next one, his men are taking drugs. What's the most natural thing to do when you've been in a state of war for 10 years? To, to ease your... I mean, think about the temptations men face either in war or once they come home. The very next adventure, the people offer drugs. He loses more of his companions. Now, if it isn't clear by now, keep this in mind. Odysseus has got to get home. This is what I mean about anti-romantic. Homer's making it clear that the cost of getting, how great the cost is of getting home. What a man will have to overcome in himself if he's to return to his wife. Okay? Can it be? I mean, look, these are the first two. Um, third, the Cyclops. These are the other major people. If you pull out this, this sheet I gave you and look at the circle, you'll see all of it. But let me just read this on page 140. From there, grieving still at heart, we sailed on further along and reached the country of the lawless, outrageous Cyclops, who, putting all their trust in the immortal gods, neither plow with their hands nor plant anything, but all grows for them without seed planting, without cultivation, wheat, barley. These people have no... So, they, they presume on the gods. They don't work. There's, this is a presumption. They assume the gods are going to take everything. How often do we hear people say, let God take care of it? These people don't do anything. They have no institutions. These people have no institutions, no meeting for councils. Rather, they make their habitations in caverns hollowed among the peaks of the mountain. Each one is a law for his own wives and children and cares nothing. Each one lives in his own private world, in his own cave. 
No laws, no institutions. Even though they're cyclops, there's nothing pulling them together. They just live for themselves. You, you know about their eyes, right? What does the one eye signify? Hmm? Ego. Narrow-minded. Narrow-minded, I think. I mean, I think the ego's there, Fran. I, I think more to the point, they're one-dimensional. And we're going to see that in a minute because you know that when Odysseus tries to get out of the cave, you know that nobody, we're going to go to that now. They only see things on one level. They don't see multiple levels. What's Homer trying to do in his poem? Teach us to read at multiple levels, to see that there's more going on than on the surface. The Cyclops are people who see surfaces. They don't get beneath them. Um, going over, Odysseus goes into the cave on page 144. Huh? He's a mean guy. Yeah, mean is, you're being nice to him. <laughs> he goes into the Cyclops cave. What should he expect as a guest stranger? A gift. Hmm? A gift well, yeah. to be uh -huh. hospitably welcomed. What does he receive on page 144? So I spoke. He says, we are your supplicants. We are here. We're strangers. What's the Cyclops response? Stranger, you are a simple fool or come from far off when you tell me to avoid the wrath of the gods or fear them. The Cyclops do not concern themselves over Zeus of the Aegis nor any of the rest of the blessed gods since we are far better than they and for fear of the hate of Zeus I would not spare you or your companions either if the fancy took me otherwise. But tell me, I may know, what's your name? And Odysseus um, says... His name is on page 146. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, he says his name is Nobody on, on page 146 at the bottom. Tell me your name straight away now so I can give you a guest present to make you happy. Odysseus says, Cyclops, you asked me for my famous name. I will tell you then, but you give me a gift as you promised. Nobody is my name. Now, stop and think about this for a minute. Could Achilles have ever done anything like this? He's in a place where he's trapped and he knows it. This is the first time we've seen a hero understand that there's no way he can extricate himself from this without his use of language. And the language has a pun in it. And think about this, because when he gets home, he's going to put on a disguise. This is really crucial. This goes to Christ, too. He's going to become nobody in his own home. He cannot go home to be who he is, because if he did, his ego is going to come out. He's going to make a mess. The first thing he does is efface himself. Here, he said, I mean, this, hold on to this name nobody, because nobody means there's nobody there. So there's nobody there while there's somebody there. That's the paradox of Odysseus. And think about Christ. You know, there and not there, that they don't know. The Jews, he's the Messiah and not. So here's a man who's taken on this identity, and the way he uses words is going to be crucial for his getting out of the situation. So he tells him nobody that Cyclops picks up a couple of his men, he dashes their brains out and then eats them. Odysseus gets him drunk and there's this one, you know how much I love these descriptions. He's gurgling with body parts coming out of his mouth. <laughs> it's disgusting, Bob. Oh, it's good. It's, that's, that's, see, that, there's, the, there's the romantic in the book. This is what I mean about Homer being a, an anti, that, he, that he's, 
he, he wants us to see the reality of things. We cannot let the ugliness of us keep us from dealing with them. Odysseus has got to learn to do that if he's going to be home. By, by the way, how easy would it be for a man to keep his wits when he's just watched this giant eat his companions? How many, how many people would hold it together? Nobody, I know. So, 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 so that's what Homer's, that's what Homer showed. Now, going over, so they get Polyphemus drunk, and when he's asleep, Odysseus gets his men to carve out this sharp point on a, on a beam, and then they put it on the fire, and you know that they're going to use this to tick. But let me read this, because I... I do. I, 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 I want all of you guys to to get stronger in dealing with bad. Here, feels like a horror movie. Yeah, a horror movie. I hate because horror movies don't have these outcomes. They don't. No, I mean, no, they're, no. that's a different genre. Homer's helping us through something to our better end. Horror movies leave you there. They just. But when the beam of olive green, as it was, was nearly at the point of catching fire and glowed terribly incandescent that I brought it close up from the fire and my friends about me stood fast. Some great divinity breathed courage into it. Could they have done it without the help of the gods again? I mean, here it is. What number are you? Yeah, 380, 147, line 380. Some great divinity breathed courage into us. They seized the beam of olive sharp at the end and leaned on it into the eye while I from above, leaning my weight on it, twirled it like a man with a brace and bit who bores into a ship timber, and his men from underneath, grasping the strap on either side, whirl it, and it bites resolutely deeper. So seizing the fire point hardened timber, we twirled it into his eye, and the blood boiled around the hot point, so that the blast and scorch of the burning ball singed all of his eyebrows and eyelids, and the fire made the roots of his eyes Crackle. <laughs> 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 oh, God. <laughs> okay. Here. Um, I want to look. Oh, if, if it's needed anywhere, it's needed in middle school today. God. As if the kids in middle school, I mean, they know more than we do as adults in what's going on in our culture, sadly. Um, you all know what happens. The, the men hide under the sheep so that when Polyphemus feels over the sheep, I mean, it's, it's Odysseus is cunning. Remember, prudence, knowing what to do, how to do it. And the, they get out of the cave, huh? Like, we refer to him a lot of times as resourceful Odysseus. Right, oh, yeah. right, good, yeah. Yeah. Long suffering, I think, all the way through. Long yeah, suffering. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you remember that, Don. He has the cunning to do that, and he gets out. Right. We missed the whole point of nobody. What, sir? Oh, oh, sorry. So you want to? You do. You do. It. You want to do it? So yeah, do it. You do it. Go ahead. No, he's killing me. The, he's screaming. All of the cyclops come running and come to the cave the stone which is blocking the way and say, um, who's killing you by force or treachery? And Polyphemus says, nobody's killing me by force or treachery. There's the one eye. He only sees surfaces. He, he cannot see multiple levels of meaning, the depths. And that's where we're going on the adventures because Odysseus is learning to see archetypes. 
and I hope it's clear by now. I mean, one of the I wish we had more time, another meeting, but we don't. One of the things that I would ask you is take every one of these archetypes and see if you can find them at home, particularly the feminine. What in the world do they have to do with Penelope? Because in every way she seems like a virtuous woman. And yet what Odysseus is learning to confront are these dangerous powers in the feminine at sea. So he gets out. Um, I want to do one more. Um, the, the island of Aeolus, the bag of wind, um, his, he and his companions are right offshore of Ithaca. They're home. And Odysseus is sleeping. Think about this. I mean, there are lapses in his character. This, I mean, this is not a time he slept. They thought the bag was full of gold. They opened it, and the winds blow them, and they're off. So that almost immediately after leaving Troy, they're home. And, and there's this thing about sometimes when you get closer to home, you get so anxious that you lose it. I know that, I know that for myself, that sometimes when we've been home, I remember it, after I'd started reading the Odyssey or Homer, and he took me. I can remember when we were away for a year in a fellowship in Illinois and then driving home in California and approaching the Bay Area, I could feel myself shaking, you know, not wanting anything to happen because we were so close to home. I'm sure most of us have that feeling that the closer you get to something you want, sometimes the more nervous you get because you might lose it. You're longing to get home. And... But turn up, I want to look at the, at the fifth one, the Lestrigones on 154. They come to the island of the Lestrigones where they meet the Lestrigones queen. On page 155, this was the powerful daughter of the Lestrigones Antiphates. Um, means against. It's an anti-force. He enters their glorious house. Go down a few lines. They found there a woman as big as a mountain peak, and the sight of her filled them with horror. At once she summoned famous Antiphates, her husband, from the assembly, and he devised dismal death against them. He snatched up one of my companions and prepared him for dinner. There's something like the Cyclops here. Um, you know what happens, they start to flee, and then the king cries out, and thousands of these Lestrigones people come, and they throw boulders larger than men, and they destroy all the ships except Odysseus' own. He started out with, I think he started out with 12 ships. That was Odysseus's platoon, his company, his city of men, the men he was in charge of. Right now he's down to one. So by the fifth adventure, he has lost all his companions but those on this one ship. So each ship, he, he kept losing men. Here's a woman who is described as being as big as a mountain. So what we're being given in the Lestrigones Queen is a woman whose sphere of influence and power for exciting violence around her is enormous. Now think, think, I mean, think about Hollywood. I mean, pick out a celebrity, a woman with her beauty and the sphere of influence that she has and the kind of violence that's put into motion around that. So here's a woman who's noted for that sphere of power. She's as large as a mountain. I, I can remember when I was young and I began to read Homer and began to have some sense of what he was doing. I remember, remember a description once of Zazab Gabor. You guys are probably... But, but I remember this. I remember. I remember hearing a news or 
a radio, I can newspaper, whatever it was, probably a newspaper back then, where she'd been stopped by a cop and she got out of the car and she just started raising hell. And I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't read that without associating her with this. I mean, imagine the power that a woman in Hollywood has because of the glamour and adulation that she has and the difficulty of dealing with her if she has that kind of power. The sphere of influence. Um, so, take these archetypes and relate them to home. Because what we're, what we're asking two questions here. What's wrong with Pylos? Remember, I'm sorry, Ithaca. And what, is, what does Odysseus do? How do? What does it mean for him to come home and, <clears throat> and um, restore order? Okay? So, um, one last thing, and then we'll stop. We've seen all of these um, episodes, um, most of which deal with women. We didn't look at the sirens. You know what happens with the sirens. Odysseus knows about them. He, he wants to experience them, so he asks the men to tie him to the mask, and he asks them to put plugs in their ears so they're not taken. When they go by the, si the siren island, he sees that the shoreline is strewn with skulls. So whatever her power is, it leads to the death of it. They are so enchanted by that beauty that they can't turn away, and they end up dead. When he goes through Skill and Charybdis, this is after he leaves Circe. Circe tells him he's going to he's going to have these adventures. Um, she says, "Go by way of which one was it? Do you remember, Skill or Charybdis?" Hmm. Going one way is going to cost the whole ship. Going another way is only going to cost six men. So what he's facing, this is anti-romantic again. He knows he's going to lose something. The question he's facing is lesser of two evils. And I think that's a principle for the whole book. It's long-suffering Odysseus. That one of the greatest things that, that he can do in his life is live by that principle. I think we're, we ourselves have to learn to live to it because most of the choices in our lives are not black and white. They rarely are. They're more often lesser of two evils, which, which will harm the least. Or So he has to go through the straits and he loses six men and then he'll go on to Thrinaka where he will lose all of his men. And it's interesting there because they're told not to eat the cattle of Helios, the sun god, because that cattle has no origins. They are immortal. Now think about that. It's, for the longest time it puzzled me. What was, they're immortal. What Homer's showing us is the danger of taking food for granted. What he's showing us here is that there's an immortal aspect, that, that all things are related to something divine. Um, I don't know if that's clear. We think of food as just food. The Greeks knew that everything came from the God. The Eucharist is the best. I mean, if we extended the principle of the Eucharist into food, we would, we would live better lives in the way that we deal with food. Um, but the Greeks believed that all things had their origins in the gods, and the danger for man was presumption. That he took things for granted constantly. So the men are ordered not to eat that food, and they starve. And the choice for them is whether they give obedience to the gods or disobey them and eat. They disobey them and eat, and they die. 
And the question we're left with is, if they had obeyed the gods, would help have been given? That is, are, are you going to die being disobedient, or are you going to die being obedient? They die. They lose all the companions, and then he, um, you know what happens. He ends up on Calypso's island. So that's just a rough overview. When we meet next week, I, wa I want to look at the land of the dead because it's one of the most important adventures. There's, it's, to me, it's really crucial. There's no way Odysseus can go home to restore order without learning something from the dead. We know this from Dante. Because the dead show us the final outcomes of things. I hope that's clear. If we don't learn to see the ultimate implications of our actions, and how will we know how to judge them? What he's going to show us is what they finally become so that we can learn from them. He's going to learn a lot of things about marriages. Men are going to have very little good to say about women. And I don't know if I've said this. When you read the, the Land of the Dead, notice the women. I'm not going to give this away. Is there anything peculiar about the women there? What do we learn about women? Because remember, this, this is a, a, an opening of the windows on men and women. Here in the Odyssey, it's very much about women and what's going on. So we'll do that. One last thing. Here in Scaria, this is one of the most important things we can take away from the Odyssey at this point. Here in Scaria, what Odysseus is doing is exactly the same thing that Homer does. He is telling a story. And think about how important that is, because in order, in order to tell a story, means you have to step outside of your existence to reflect back on it, because he's going back. He's not the same person. So for him to do that means he has um, a perspective of distance. He can see things now. And what he's showing us in this story is not the surfaces of things. He's using visible images. Cyclops, Serena's queen, He's using visible images to show invisible realities. So that the man that we're watching here in Scaria, in the middle of the story, remember, it's the Telemachi, the adventures, the homecoming. Here in the middle of the book, the whole entire middle of the book is a representation of his adventures. And he's telling the stories. So he's basically doing what Homer's doing. So how important is this act of self-reflection, stepping outside of oneself to reflect on, and not only reflect on, but to, but to go to metaphysical realities, those things that are beneath the surface, if he's to get home to restore it. Okay, that's where we are here. So let's just leave it here, okay? Next week, next week I'd like to start with the land of the dead. There's only a few things I want to do at home, a couple of things I want to look at. Um, and then I want to, I'm going to ask you guys what you think if there's, if, if, if he foreshadows Christ. I've already suggested some ways, but I really would like to hear you guys, what your thoughts. Is there any way in which he anticipates Christ? If so, how? But, okay, so next week. Okay. What? Is it? Good stopping place then. Yes.